Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Uh, if you are listening to this, please note that this is the second part of a two-part Needful Things review. What happened was I finished recording the review in its entirety. I tried to upload it. It was too long, so I just wound up splitting it in half. So if you're listening to this, um, make sure that you listen to the first part before you listen to this. And if you have listened to the first part, keep on listening. Like I said, King teases the events yet to come in the final pages of part one. When Gaunt acknowledges to himself that business is so good, it's time to take on an assistant. The reader immediately sits up at that. Who would an assistant to Leland Gaunt even look like? Would that assistant be even human? King gives us the answer to these questions nearly right away. He provides a great introduction, or reintroduction rather, to an iconic King character. If you count the movies. Played with the snake-like charm in the classic Stand By Me by Jack Bauer himself, Kiefer Sutherland, the villainous Ace Merrill has returned. If it's the last Castle Rock story, then it's necessary to include its bully. And King acknowledges that he acknowledges the body with the names of the characters from the novella. Despite the fact that Castle Rock is a town that has existed since the early days of King's career, there aren't many characters who we've seen bounce from story to story. Buster, Polly, Norris, Alan, all of these characters are characters that were first introduced or mentioned only two books ago with the Dark Half. So there isn't much story with these players. So when Ace strolls into the place, he brings that sense of history. Um, history within the text as it's referenced by the townsfolk, but history outside of the text for the reader as well. And at this point in his career, King hasn't created just one Merrill character, but two, with Pop Merrill from The Sun Dog. And though he's technically deceased, King wasn't going to let a little thing like dying stand in the way of a Merrill family reunion, which we are given in the form of a flashback. And they're reunited in the present in a sense that Ace, desperate for money, sees what he thinks is a book on buried treasure written by Pop himself. It doesn't take long for Gaunt to employ Ace, send him on a mission while stoking Ace's dreams of digging for buried treasure. Ace and Alan have a confrontation, and just as Alan is going to head into needful things, his pager goes off. It's from Sheila at Dispatch, but the page might as well have come from Stephen King himself, who's doing everything he can to keep that uh, Pangborn and Gaunt away from each other. If you're getting tired of King's mischief and wanted scares, well, you're in luck. When Ace heads out to Boston, King creates an incredibly ominous tone filled with dread. Ace even feels like he's stepped out of his world and into the Twilight Zone. Not only do we get some classic King creepiness, but we also get a little insight into Gaunt's powers. When Ace arrives to uh, the, the, the place, um, he finds a tape player with the message, Play Me. When Ace presses the dusty play button, Gaunt's voice comes out talking directly to Ace, suggesting that Gaunt might be able to see a bit further down the road and knew that Ace would stroll past his window. King then spends dozens and dozens of pages showing us the townspeople shopping at Needful Things, which doesn't add up to much, to be honest. I mean, we have already seen this. Uh, the scenes are well written, but frankly, they're pretty repetitive. You know, thank we, thankfully, we have Alan, who is pursuing the lead on the Jersey Cobb double murder, each page a page closer to confronting Brian Rusk. 
Soon enough, Gaunt begins placing the automatic weapons that Ace had brought into the hands of his customers. By this point, Gaunt is functioning the way that Barlow and the Tommyknockers had in his previous novels. Not only is he setting the townspeople against each other, he's casting a spell over each of his customers so that they can't really think straight and are susceptible to his whisters. He begins to sink his claws into Polly, knowing that she's the key to gaining the upper hand on Alan. If he successfully turns Polly against Alan, using the death of her child and the crippling pain of her arthritis, then he will have free reign over the town without the obstacle of the sheriff to get in his way. And Gaunt is going to need Polly because Alan is growing close to discovering the truth of things when he begins, when he begins to speak to Brian Rusk. Fortunately for Gaunt, Alan is whisked away just before Brian is about to talk, and Polly receives a false letter in the mail with Alan's name on it. After her confrontation, Alan has a very relatable life moment. He felt a sudden urge, amazingly strong, to rip the mic out of its socket and throw it into the bushes beyond the sidewalk, then drive away. Anywhere. Just stop thinking about everything and drive down the sun. I read that not because it has great importance, but like I said, it's just, that is a very understandable, I believe, very identifiable, identifiable feeling and sensation that I know that I personally have felt, I'm sure that we all have, and in the middle of this, this supernatural devil comes the small town story where we have um, not one but two characters um, having an affair with Elvis Presley. Um, where one character is holding a shard of what she thinks is Noah's Ark, uh, where we have magical automatic weapons being brought in from another world, where all of this stuff is going on. It's just, it's great to have it grounded by these little life moments that just make everything relatable. King then teases the apocalyptic showdown with another reminder about the dynamite that had been introduced earlier. Hold on one second. Thank you, I just really needed a drink. Stephen King cast, brought to you by Gatorade. Anyway, we have about 200 pages to go at this point. Our antagonist has effectively turned our heroes against each other. Automatic weapons are being passed around like flyers. We have a large quantity of dynamite. Our townsfolk are beginning to turn on each other. The hurricane hasn't hit yet, but we can feel the wind starting to blow, and upon its back carries the name Leland Gaunt. We first see the I'm sorry, we first saw the effects of Gaunt's manipulation with Nettie and Wilma. Here, Gaunt pushes down the throttle, and the town suffers multiple confrontations simultaneously. Frank Jewett and George Nelson, Lester Pratt and John LaPointe, and Hugh Priest and Henry Beaufort. Basically, this is where it hits the fan. King masterfully builds the tension in these scenes, dancing from one set of characters to the next, racking the suspense and then jumping back to another set of characters, building the intensity with them, and back to the first set of the characters. I mean, things are escalating at an alarming rate, and in the middle of all of this is Alan, who remains calm throughout, but is confused and concerned at how quickly his town fell apart from underneath him. All of this violence is capped by the tragic suicide of Brian Rusk. Smartly, King presents it through the eyes of his little brother, Sean, who can't get his mother's attention to tell her that something is wrong with Brian because his mom is too busy spending time with Elvis. 
The scene stands out in stark contrast to the preceding scene in which Frank Jewett, the would-be assassin, was being inadvertently smothered to death from the couch he accidentally fell asleep behind. But before I can dwell on it for very long, King gives me my favorite moment in the book. It's such an obvious, fan-pleasing moment, I can't help but make you pump your fist in the air with joy. What happens is that Polly heads out to complete her deal with Gaunt and drives to the Cambers property, the setting for Cujo. While there, King reminisces about Donna and Tad Trenton, and Polly thinks she hears something in the barn. She tells herself that she's imagining it and goes about her work, placing an object in an old coffee can for Ace Merrill to dig up, burns the pornographic photos that she finds within that can, and when she's finished, King writes... It was a relief to watch the surface of the one photograph she could see bubble and turn brown. When the pictures began to curl up, she dropped the flaming bundle into the dirt where a woman had once beaten another dog, this one a St. Bernard, to death with a baseball bat. The flames flared. The little pile of stamps and photos quickly crumpled to black ash. The flames guttered, went out. At the moment they did, a sudden gust of wind blew through the stillness of the day, breaking the clot of ash up into flakes. They whirled upward in a funnel, which, po which Polly followed with eyes that had gone suddenly wide and frightened. Where exactly had that freak gust of wind come from? Got goosebumps. Oh, please, can't you stop being so damned? At that moment, the growling sound, low, like an idling outboard motor rose from the hot, dark maw of the barn again. It wasn't her imagination, and it wasn't a creaking board. It was a dog. Polly looked that way, frightened, and saw two sunken red circles of light peering out at her from the darkness. Ah! Oh my god. Like, how awesome is that? Um, she ran around her car, bumping her hip painfully against the right side of the hood in her hurry, got in, rolled up the windows, and locked the doors. She turned the ignition key. The engine cranked over, but did not start. No one knows where I am, she realized. No one but Mr. Gaunt, and he wouldn't tell. For a moment, she imagined herself trapped out here, the way Donna Trenton and her son had been trapped. Then the engine burst into life and she backed out of the driveway so fast she almost ran her car into the ditch on the far side of the road. That's right, everyone. On Stephen King's final lap around his fictional town, history's most famous St. Bernard makes one final appearance. I often think of the next scene when I think of King's abilities, specifically his ability to craft a character's traits. Now, for over 500 pages, we have watched the deterioration of Buster's sanity, his growing paranoia, and his hatred of the nickname everyone calls him behind his back. By this point, we know Buster almost better than any other character in the book. So when he returns home handcuffed, humiliated, and starts to argue with a frightened Myrtle, we should feel worrisome. And in the middle of it, she does it. She goes ahead and does it. And it's so quick and natural, but it still seals her doom. Two syllables. That's all it takes. Buster. She calls him Buster. And as the garage door closes behind him, and as he grips the hammer in his hand, the scene just...
builds and builds and builds, and it just hinges upon that one little slip of the tongue. And because King has spent so much time building up Buster's craziness and insecurity, this moment works wonders. King concludes the second part of his book with Ace finding what Polly had left buried in the Cambers property, a fake note from Alan to Ace that puts the sheriff in the crosshairs of a coked-out, rage-fueled ex-con and former schoolyard bully. Part 3. When Gaunt sets up shop in the alley behind Needful Things, King teases the long and bloody past of our villain on pages... Uh, 547 to 548. Mr. Gaunt had enjoyed his shop, but he never felt so comfortable behind plate glass and under a roof as he did here on the edge of the air with the first breezes of the coming storm stirring his hair. The shop, with its clever display lights on ceiling-mounted tracks, was all right, but this was better. This was always better. He had begun business many years ago as a wandering peddler on the blind face of a distant land, a peddler who carried his wares on his back, a peddler who usually came at the fall of darkness and was always gone the next morning, leaving bloodshed, horror, and unhappiness behind him. Years later, in Europe, as the plague raged and the dead carts rolled, he had gone from town to town and country to country in a wagon drawn by a slat-thin white horse with terrible burning eyes and a tongue as black as a killer's heart. He had sold his wares from the back of a wagon and was gone before his customers, who paid with small ragged coins or even in barter, could discover what they had really bought. Times changed. Methods changed. Faces, too. But when the faces were needful, they were always the same. The faces of sheep who have lost their shepherd, and it was with this sort of commerce that he felt the most at home, most like that wandering peddler of old, standing not behind a fancy counter with a suite of cash registered nearby, but behind a plain wooden table, making change out of a cigar box and selling them the same item over and over and over again. The goods, which had so attracted the residents of Castle Rock, the black pearls, the holy relics, the carnival glass, the pipes, the old comic books, the baseball cards, the antique kaleidoscopes, were all gone. Mr. Gaunt had gotten down to his real business, and at the end of things, the real business was always the same. The ultimate item had changed with the years, just like everything else, but such changes were surface things, frosting of different flavors on the same dark and bitter cake. At the end, Mr. Gaunt always sold them weapons, and they always bought. If that wasn't bad enough, we learn that the weapons, unlike any from this earth, probably because they're not, come equipped with poison bullets. While Gaunt doles out these weapons of death to the Castle Rock citizens like free samples in a supermarket, he also gathers Ace and Buster to his side. Visiting with Sean Rusk, Alan gets a clearer picture of what's going on in this town. During this scene, Sean asks if Alan is a sheriff, like in Young Guns and Young Guns 2, movies which both starred Ace Merrill himself, Kiefer Sutherland, and the star of Maximum Overdrive, Emilio Estevez, the son of Greg Stilson and Captain Hollister, Martin Sheen, who co-starred in The West Wing with Rob Lowe, who starred in both The Stand, which featured Alan Pangbore himself, Ed Harris, and the remake of Salem's Lot, whose original movie starred Polly Chalmers herself, Bonnie Bedelia. 
It's during this scene where Alan finally realizes that his suspicions have been confirmed. There is something suspicious about the new merchant who had just rolled into town. What makes this moment work so well as it does is how King has kept our two players apart from each other for so long. A realization that Alan um, now realizes was purposeful on Gaunt's part. And not only does Alan feel the need to avenge the townsfolk who have died from the result of Gaunt's manipulations, but like any good action movie, by turning Polly against him, he made it personal. When Ace returns to Castle Rock, he encounters the unpredictability and the wrath of Mr. Gaunt that would make Lloyd Henry think of Randall Flagg. So on page 594... Leland Gaunt was upon him before Ace even saw him move. Those long, ugly hands seized him by the front of the shirt and lifted him into the air as if he were made of feathers. A startled cry fell out of his mouth. The hands which held him were like iron. Mr. Gaunt lifted him high, and Ace suddenly found himself looking down in that blazing, hellish face with only the haziest idea of how he had gotten there. Even in the extremity of his sudden terror, he noticed that smoke, or perhaps it was steam, was coming out of Mr. Gaunt's ears and nostrils. He looked like a human dragon. You tell me nothing, Mr. Gaunt screamed up at him. His tongue licked out between those jostling tombstone teeth, and Ace saw it came down to a double point like the tongue of a snake. I tell you everything. Shut up when you are in the company of your elders and betters, Ace. Shut up and listen. Shut up and listen. Shut up and listen. And he uh, goes on. Um... Now, it's during this particular scene um, that Ace specifically recounts the events of the body. So again, on the victory lap, or the, the final lap of Stephen King's tour around Castle Rock, it makes sense that he's going to say goodbye and have his, his more famous Castle Rock citizens say goodbye, whether it's in a flashback or a reference or in ghostly form, like we had seen uh, Cujo and George Stark before. On page 596, Ace thought back. He thought back all the way to a time, many years ago, when four snot-nosed kids had cheated him and his friends. Ace had friends back in those days, or at least a reasonable approximation thereof, out of something that Ace had wanted. They caught one of the snot-noses, Gordy Lachance, later on, and had beaten the living S out of him, but it hadn't mattered. These days, Lachance was a big-shot writer living in another part of the state, and probably he wiped his ass with $10 bills. Somehow, those snot noses had won, and things had never been the same for Ace after that. That's when his luck had turned bad. Doors that had been opened to him had begun to close one by one. Little by little, he had begun to realize that he was not a king and Castle Rock was not his kingdom. If that had ever been true, those days had begun to pass that Labor Day weekend when he was 16, when the snots had cheated him and his friends out of what was rightfully theirs. By that time, Ace was old enough to drink legally in the Mellow Tiger. He had gone from being a king to being a soldier without a uniform, skulking through enemy territory. The reference to the body places the actions of the boys into greater context. At the time, it was about standing up to the bully, about becoming an adult. But in that moment, their actions set Ace on a path of defeat that ultimately led to this moment where he stood on one end of a cosmic battle between good and evil in a war that waged in his hometown. This war reaches its peak 
when Gaunt pits the Baptists and the Catholics against each other after stink-bombing each of their meetings. Is this King's commentary on organized religion? In the wrong hands, those following organized religion may claim to seek purity, but in essence, fill their house of worship with stink? Whatever he's trying to say, King doesn't pull any punches with these characters. They aren't off the hook just because they're religious. They're like any other townsfolk who fall for Gaunt's lies. They look like bumbling dolts. It's during this scene where King name drops Johnny Smith from the dead zone as the bandstand where he learned the identity of Frank Dodd is exploded by lightning. And the two groups of worshippers meet. It is brutal, satirical, and ugly. Hundreds of years worth of religious differences, wars caused because of differing religions' views are all boiled down to one street in a small New England town. Alan returns to this town and witnesses the results of this chaos and knows that the only way to stop it isn't to try and stop the flood, but to find the man who's been drilling holes in the dam. As the town tears itself apart, a few of its citizens allow themselves to think through their situation to see through the fog of their greed and the spell that Gaunt had cast upon them. First, it's Norris, who finally sees his fishing rod as nothing more than a piece of bamboo with a string attached to it. And then Polly, who is visited in the dream by the ghost of her aunt, Polly then realizes that the letter that caused her to push Alan away had been a sham due to the fact that it was addressed to Patricia and not Polly, the name that Child Services had known her as during her San Francisco days. Now that she has come to her senses, she rips the Azka from her neck. King has teased this moment since the first time she put it on. Immediately, she had felt something shift inside, and now we see what that thing is. It is, unsurprisingly, if you know Stephen King's works, a spider. And I say unsurprisingly because King loves his spiders. And I see why. I get it. They're horrifyingly alien creatures. Especially this one. It escapes to the bathroom, growing in size as it goes. Polly rushes after it, her hands stiffening from the arthritis that comes swooping back in. And as she attempts to beat the still-growing thing to death, the lights go out. That's terrifying! It's just another example of how these last hundred pages or so has just been a non-stop thrill ride. And Alan finally arrives to needful things. Despite the fact that the sign suggests that the store is closed, he knows that Gaunt would have stayed to watch the festivities. He's suddenly overcome by an urge to grab the trick can of peanuts, the one that his dead son had purchased where snakes pop out when you open it. King connects Gaunt and Pangborn through their distinct brands of magic on page 642. Magic. Wasn't that what this was all about? It was mean-spirited magic, granted, Magic calculated not to make people gasp and laugh, but to turn them into angry, charging bulls. But it was magic just the same. And what was the basis of all magic? Misdirection. It was a five-foot-long snake hidden inside of a can of nuts. Or he thought, thinking of Polly, it's a disease that looks like a cure. And on page 643, Alan Pangborn finally enters Needful Things and finds Gaunt's present for him, a video of what caused the car crash of his wife and son. Despite the logical move, which would be to not watch this video, he can't help but watch the video, which shows Ace run the car off the road, filling Alan with blinding rage. 
We then check back in with Polly, who continues to fight the growing spider. It's horrifying. She opened her mouth... I'm sorry, I'll... On page 646, um, she drew in a breath to scream, and then its front legs dropped onto her shoulders like the arms of some scabrous dime-a-dance Lothario. Its listless ruby eyes stared into her own. Its fanged mouth dropped open, and she could smell its breath, a stink of bitter spices and rotting meat. She opened her mouth to scream. One of its legs pawed into her mouth. <coughs> Rough, gruesome bristles caressed her teeth and tongue. The spider mewled eagerly. Um, Polly winds up defeating the spider, despite the fact that it is sticking its legs into her mouth. Um, she destroys it. It's disgusting, but she wins and knows instinctively that Alan needs her help. Norris also has his hero moment as he confronts Ace and Buster, and when the shootout commences, he takes Buster out, but not before taking a few rounds himself. And knowing that the bullets are poisoned, things don't bode well for Norris, despite his newfound heroism. He and fellow deputy Seat arrive to Needful Things just as Ace has taken Polly hostage. And everything goes down very quickly. Alan uses magic. Actual magic. When he pops the can of nuts and an actual snake pops out to attack Gaunt. Alan uses the moment to steal Gaunt's bag containing the stolen souls of the townsfolk. Polly bites Ace, which allows Norris the opportunity to kill him. And then Kane gives us the much-anticipated confrontation between the sheriff and the monster who had taken over his town. So, uh, let, let's talk about the ending. If you don't like it, I guess I get it. But at the end of the day, how are you going to defeat Gaunt? Bullets? I just don't see that working. Um, magic items prophesized in some ancient scroll? I mean, that wasn't built into the story. You know, the one thing that had been built into the story was magic. For two novels now, The Dark Half and now this, we've identified Alan Pangborn with magic. Sleight of hand, illusions, parlor tricks, shadow puppetry. It's been built into the character from day one. So really, was it a surprise when Pangborn uses this magic to defeat the villain, a character also defined by his own brand of magic? Some people criticize the ending. Personally, I love it. I mean, the man uses shadow puppets to defeat the villain. I'm sorry. Look, it's so crazy. I love it. Plus, uh, King has about 10 pages left for the tale about his most famous town. So he even works in that sort of trip down memory lane callback that television series finales tend to incorporate into their story to remind the viewers of all of the memories he or she might have had on that show. So on page 678, King writes, Alan felt his belly try to fold in on itself, but he didn't move. Instead, prompted by some instinct he made no effort to understand, he put his hands together in front of the station wagon's left headlight. He crossed them, made a bird shape, and began to bend his wrists rapidly back and forth. The sparrows are flying again, Mr. Gaunt, he thought. A large projected shadow bird, more hawk than sparrow, and unsettlingly realistic for an insubstantial shade, suddenly flapped across the false front of needful things. Gaunt saw it from the corner of his eye, whirled towards it, gasped, and retreated again. 
Get out of town, my friend, Alan said. He rearranged his hands and now a large shadow dog, perhaps a St. Bernard, slouched across the front of you so-and-so in the spotlight thrown by the station wagon's headlights. And somewhere near, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, a dog began to bark. A large one by that sound. You know, that's just the warm-up. When Gaunt goes for his bag, King unleashes Pangborn's potential. On page 679, um, King writes, Abracadabra, look, listen, this is the thing. I love it. I love this. And just as I started to read it, I realized that some people out there probably were rolling their eyes, but I love this, that this is the smile, you son of a bitch moment. Abracadabra, you lying F, he cried, and what suddenly bloomed in his hand was not a bouquet of flowers, but a blazing bouquet of light that lit Upper Main Street with a fabulous shifting radiance. Yet he realized the colors rising from his fist in an incredible fountain were one color, as all the colors translated by a glass prism or rainbow in the air are all one color. He felt a jolt of power run up his arm, and for a moment he was filled with a great an incoherent ecstasy. The white, the coming of the white. Gaunt howled with pain and rage and fear, but did not back away. Perhaps it was as Alan had suggested. It had been so long since he had lost the game that he had forgotten how. He had tried to dive in below the bouquet of light shimmering over Alan's closed hand, and just for a moment, his fingers actually touched the handles of the valets between Alan's feet. Suddenly, a foot clad in a bedroom slipper appeared, Polly's foot. She stamped down on Gaunt's hand. Leave it alone, she stamped. Um, and he continues to, to write. I'm telling you for the last time to get out, he said in a voice he did not recognize as his own. It was too strong, too sure, too full of power. He understood he probably could not put an end to the thing which crouched before him with one cringing hand raised to shield its face from the shifting spectrum of light, but he could make it be gone. Tonight that power was his if he dared to use it, if he dared to stand and be true. Alan uses this power that courses through him to release the souls of the townsfolk. It is such a triumphant scene that reminds me of a certain scene with Father Callahan in the Dark Tower. He beats back Gaunt, who transforms into his true form, an elf-like creature who rides away into the night sky while our heroes roll out of Castle Rock, which we then place in our rearview mirror forever. But there's an epilogue with our narrator again, the one who opened the novel, or one just like him, I suppose. There's a narrator like this in every town, I guess, and the novel ends as it began, with a gossipy rundown of the townspeople and the arrival of a new store, one that we find all too familiar. So before I get in my final thoughts, um, I just want to talk about the tone of this book. You know, I just need to stress the wonderful, wonderful tone of this book. You know, I didn't catch it during my first read. I was too young to do so. Um, but now it's clear that King has crafted a tale that's just as funny as it is dark. You know, Salem's Lot was a serious examination on the life and death of a small town. But here, King lampoons the small town trivialities with a grand flourish. It's as if we should see the characters not through the eyes of any of the townsfolk, but through the eyes of Leland Gaunt, who treats the destruction of each soul as entertainment. And who can blame him? It's entertaining! 
and the amount of time they spend on their petty little insecurities and anxieties, you kind of want to see their downfalls. I mean, just look at what he writes on page 37. You know, it's a condemnation of the citizens of a small New England town, which he refers to as Hicks. When a new shop opens in a small New England town, the residents, Hicks though they may be in many other things, display a cosmopolitan attitude which their city cousins can rarely match. In New York or Los Angeles, a new gallery may attract a little knot of might-be patrons and simple lookers-on before the doors are opened for the first time. A new club may even garner a line, and police barricades with paparazzi armed with gadget bads and telephoto lenses standing expectantly beyond them. There is an excited hum of conversation as among theater-goers on Broadway before the opening of a new play which, smash hit or drop-dead flop, is sure to cause comment. When a new shop opens in a small New England town, there is rarely a crowd before the doors open and never a line. When the shades are drawn up, the doors unlocked, and the new concern declared open for business, customers come and go in a trickle, which would undoubtedly strike an outsider as pathetic, and probably as an ill omen for the shopkeeper's future prosperity. What seems like a lack of interest often masks keen anticipation and even keener observation. And he just goes on to just write these ridiculous social etiquettes that one must follow when a new shop opens in town. I mean, it is absurd how many rules need to be followed and shows just how foolish the characters look by placing so much importance on an unimportant event. I mean, then we have Buster. I mean, he's a walking cartoon. And then we have Reverend Willie, whose every conversation he has sounds like he's presiding over his parish. You know, and then there's the, the moment when Gaunt sells his items. Um, I mean, these times are, are often sources of hilarity. I mean, just look at Myra's first encounter with the Elvis photo, with her throwing herself at Gaunt's feet and their exchange um, on page 113. Myra fell on her knees before him. She was weeping in a hoarse, panicky sob. She clutched his calves as she groveled before him. Please, please, Mr. Gaunt, I have to have that picture. I have to. It does. You wouldn't believe what it does. Mr. Gaunt looked at the picture of Elvis, and a momentary look of distaste crossed his face. I don't think I want to know, he said. It looked extremely sweaty. You know, another example, you know, just look at Wilma's views on marriage um, on page 129 to 130. I mean, Wilma, I, this character is ridiculous. You know, I mean, this is, I'll get to this in the Stephen Kingisms, um, but he loves writing these type A personalities. Um, and she is this alpha female that is just a, a tank of a person. Um, and everything that she does can be boiled down to how she sees marriage. Everything is a unnecessary battle. She believed in her heart that marriage was a lifetime adventure in aggression and in such a long campaign where ultimately no prisoners could be taken, no quarter given, no patch of marital landscape left unscorched, such easy victories might eventually lose their savor. But that time had not yet come and so she went out to the clotheslines with the basket on her left arm and her heart light beneath the swell of her bosom. So that, that is how she looks at marriage. You know what I mean? That's, 
you know, I mean, and just the fact that that's how she sees marriage. And after all of that, King ends his paragraph of her, you know, describing that her heart felt light. So, I mean, it's, it's examples like this that show that he is having a blast writing it. And we, I want to say we shouldn't take it seriously, but we should have fun with it because it's clear that, um, he's having fun with it. And, and, and speaking of Norma and, or Wilma and, and Pete, um, you know, Pete also gives his, his side of, um, of the, the marriage as well. You know, <laughs> Wilma knew that she had cowed her husband, but she had no idea to how great an extent. He did not just live in fear of her. He lived in awe of her. As natives in certain tropical climes once supposedly lived in awe and superstitious dread of the great god Thunder Mountain, which might brood silently over their sunny lives for years, or even generations before suddenly exploding in a murderous tirade of burning lava. You know, I mean, later, when multiple threads intertwine and culminate in a bloody conclusion, King doesn't forget that we should be able to laugh. Multiple characters are dead and dying, and he takes the time to focus on Buster's hilarious slow-motion escape, and Frank being pinned behind the couch of the man that he was ready to kill. So, we we should be, you know, cringing at, at the, the brutal aspects of this story, but we should also be laughing at, at the funny stuff that's, that's happening because this is a satire, um, of the 1980s culture of the, the materialism that defined that decade. It's all boiled down right here into small town, Maine. Now I want to talk about addiction, uh, because King has famously battled addiction in the past. And this struggle has weaved in and out of his books. We've seen presented literally or metaphorically uh, with the shining fire starter drawing of the three misery, the Tommyknockers, the dark half. You know, Needful Things is the first novel he wrote while being on sobriety. But just because he's sober doesn't mean that he's done exploring the addiction or its hold it has on its users. Leland Gaunt is a devil figure, yes, but when you look close enough, he's really nothing more than a drug dealer. This first manifests with Brian Rusk. After holding the wood from Noah's Ark, Brian immediately wants more, and Gaunt is there, ready to sell it to him. When Brian blurts out that he would love a 56 Sandy Koufax card, King writes, Well, I can look at it, can't I? It doesn't cost anything to look, does it? The answer is no, if you're strong enough to resist temptation, but King knows better than to play with fire, so to speak. And if it were King in Brian's shoes, he'd know enough to hightail it before looking, because someone, because looking can cost you something. It can cost you everything. The shop itself isn't the only example of addiction uh, in this novel, because addiction is quite literally played out with the character of Hugh Priest. Hugh was initially presented as an offensive, worthless, bitter, angry drunk. When he discovers the foxtail in the window shop, we see him not as the man he is, but the boy he used to be. We get the edges of a memory of the best hour of the best day of his life, a sentiment later repeated almost word for word by Radio Mike and Dumaki. Um, and this simple detail turns this one-note caricature into a three-dimensional character and automatically elicits sympathy from the reader. 
King works in his own experience with alcohol and its rubbery hold on the drinker. Remember, this is King's first book while sober. He's channeling a lot into these pages, and Priest bears a lot of King's catharsis. Hugh's addiction to the feeling of the foxtail convinces him to eschew attempts to get better, and in doing so, he continually surrenders to a life of constant drunkenness. King also works Polly's plight into the overarching theme of addiction. She's so crippled by her arthritis that Alan worries that he's talking to the drugs, not the woman. And Polly herself fears addiction. Even when Gaunt provides the Asuka to her, it reads more like a dealer allowing a prospective buyer to test the product, knowing that he's ensuring a guaranteed customer. So I would say that, you know, we have a satire here of the 1980s and a very deep examination of, of an addictive um, lifestyle. All right, everybody, um, let's talk about the characters here. Starting with the shop owner himself, Mr. Leland Gaunt. I mean, seriously, what a wonderful character. You know, in the previous Castle Rock story, The Sun Dog, you know, King wrote of a three-dimensional dog in a two-dimensional Polaroid world. And in many ways, Gaunt is that dog. Within the first two pages, King describes the strange length of his fingers, his crooked teeth, his melodious voice, his ice-chip eyes, his long yellow nails, his hand rubbing that sounds like snakes about to spring, his red velvet jacket. He's a character that stands out among his surroundings, and it shouldn't be a surprise that King highlights the character's features with the otherwise empty store. When Brian enters the store, he's not introduced to the valuable knickknacks on display, but the store owner. King's way of demonstrating what needful things really is. It's not the store, it's the proprietor. Uh, the, red the red velvet jacket um, is hilarious, by the way. You know, the book is not designed by King to be subtle here. I mean, it's his commentary, like I said, on 80s excess after all. Um, and it's not as if the 1980s were known for their subtlety. You know, the jacket screams devil. Um, and also, in my interpretation, Hugh Hefner. You know, King lays on the devil imagery pretty thickly from the red jacket, the sound of snakes when his hands rubbed together, um, the devil dogs Brian Mothers eats, um, the fact that Gaunt says, I'll have to work like the devil to get the shop ready for its grand opening. Polly brings him devil foods cake. I mean, st you know, smoke and steam come billowing out of his mouth and his ears. He has a forked tongue. You know, he's also quick with a joke, uh, most likely because he's the only one in on the joke, that the town is occupied by buffoons. So in our first introduction to him, he's merry and jolly and gleefully announces that he's from Akron, Ohio, no doubt assured that the townsfolk would be dumb enough to accept it. He's just a well-designed devilish figure that can lure you in with a lie and a promise, and once mesmerized, you know, he lets that charm slip. This is when his disdain and impatience comes out. The real horror isn't from the smoke that comes out of his nose, but it's from his view of humanity and how small everyone is to him. Uh, now let's uh, talk about Alan. Um, there really isn't much to say about Alan that I haven't said before. Uh, so if uh, you have not listened to my bonus episode of uh, the dark half entitled Alan Pangborn, comma, Gunslinger, you should head on over there right now and listen to that because I spend 12 minutes talking about Alan um, and the role of Alan in the world of Stephen King. 
Um, and I don't really want to just repeat myself too much because we're already almost up to um, one hour, 30 minutes. So this is one of the, the more lengthy reviews. So, but I mean, I, I think the world of Alan Pennyborn, I think that the guy is one of Stephen King's best creations. I think that he is, you know, the, the embodiment of the, the small town, everyday hero that, that King um, has written for years. Uh, and, you know, he steps a little bit outside of his uh, wheelhouse on this one. He's not just an everyman. He's not, you know, a writer. He's not a teacher. You know, he's a town sheriff with, you know, responsibilities that, you know, require King to look outside of himself, um, you know, rather than just kind of writing about writers. And it just opens up a new world that we haven't necessarily seen before in Stephen King's works. And like I've said, I think there was a missed opportunity for Stephen King to write the episodic adventures of Alan Pangborn. Like I said, I would love to just read um, you know, a book that, that has an Alan Pangborn adventure or an Alan Pangborn novel or an Alan Pangborn mystery um, on the cover. I think that that would be fantastic. I'll talk more about Alan in the bonus episode of this um, in which I will make some connections to the Dark Tower. Um, and then uh, we have our quote on page uh, 628, which is... Everyone in town belongs here. In fact, everyone in the world belongs here because everyone loves a bargain. Everyone loves something for nothing, even if it costs everything. And now we have our Easter eggs. Our Easter eggs are the little cameos and the, the references to other Stephen King's works. And this one is loaded with them, seeing as how it takes place in Castle Rock. The first we have is Pop Merrill. Uh, you know, right away, the narrator reminds the reader that Pop, the character from The Sun Dog, has died. Um, Mr. Gaunt will later refer to Pop in regards to respect that he has for him for Pop's bargaining skills. And we see evidence of Pop all throughout the... Um, throughout the novel. We have references to Sheriff Bannerman, who was uh, Alan Pangborn's predecessor. The Dead Zone is referenced a number of times. Uh, the Dead Zone was the first time uh, we saw Castle Rock. We were introduced to Castle Rock when Sheriff Bannerman approached Johnny Smith to help out with uh, some murders that were occurring within the town. Like I said earlier, we see the ghost of Cujo. It's such a great moment. I love it. I mean, Cujo rolls out of the barn, um, you know, uh, you know, to to scare Polly away. But also, you know, in his own way, Alan is able to summon that ghost of Cujo to work for him. We have a Polaroid camera on display in Needful Things, um, which is a shout out to the Sun Dog, the novella in uh, Four Past Midnight, and I think that this answers the question from the Sun Dog who the camera belonged to. We have Thad Beaumont. Um, Thad does not make an appearance, uh, and Thad was the star main character of The Dark Half. And through Alan, we learn that in the months following the events of The Dark Half, Thad uh, would, grow dr would grow drunk and call Alan um, at night. And later we learn that uh, Liz Beaumont, his wife, had taken the twins and left Thad. Uh, spoiler alert, we will later learn in Bag of Bones, I believe, that Thad Beaumont ultimately commits suicide. Number eight is Juniper Hill. Nettie had spent five years in the mental asylum whose fellow resident was Henry Bowers from It. Number nine is Being Dim. 
when Gaunt hides himself from Pangborn, uh, he has gone dim, uh, which is a uh, power that uh, Randall Flagg has, uh, Rhea the Coos from uh, Wizard and Glass has. It's the ability to be almost invisible, but not entirely invisible. Uh, we see Blue Fire from the Hand of a Magician. This is a Easter egg and not a Stephen King-ism because it's very similar to what Randall Flagg um, does in both the pages of The Stand and um, Eyes of the Dragon. It's linking these two characters who I believe are from the same land. Uh, we have Aunt Evie, who was first seen in Cujo. We have uh, the magazine tabloid Inside View, which was first seen in the Dead Zone and will um, uh, later be seen again in the Night Flyer. Both um, that novel and the, the, the short story feature the character Richard Dees. Number 23 is the Plains of Leng. This is where Gaunt tells Ace where he gets his cocaine. Um, this is taken from Lovecraft um, and has also been referenced in the Eyes of the Dragon. Number 24 is... Um, sorry, 24. How did I, I went from 9 to 20. Uh, so this is actually number 14. Uh, number 14 is You Bet Your Fur, which is a, a phrase uttered by the losers um, in It and here by Ace. Number 25, the events of the body are referenced. Number 26 is the white, and I will talk about this more in the bonus edition, um, but this is the magic that courses through Alan and allows him to defeat Gaunt. This is not the first time we have seen the white. We have seen it in um, the pages of the talisman. Number 27, the stand. Uh, King writes as Alan blasts Gaunt with the power of the white. He understood that he probably could not put an end to the thing which crouched before him with one cringing hand raised to shield its face from the shifting spectrum of light, but he could make it be gone. Tonight the power was his if he dared to use it, if he dared to stand and be true. Like the conclusion of the stand, it isn't about defeating the monster, it's about having the strength to stand up to it. Number 28 is Ka and Cycles. It's King's most explored theme, which is found as the spine of the Dark Tower series and seen in It, the Library Policeman, the Stand, and here as evidenced by the mirroring of the opening and closing of the novel. And lastly, we have Junction City, the setting of the Library Policeman, um, which is the, the new home of Leland Gaunt. Our narrator even name-checks Sam and Naomi, the two main characters from The Library Policeman, uh, the novella found within the pages of Four Past Midnight. Now we will have our Stephen Kingisms, the tricks and traits and tropes of the author that you will see across all of his works or a number of his works. The first is The Devil's Imp. In the pages of The Stand, Mother Abigail uh, reduced the threat of Randall Flagg by referring to him not as the devil, but the devil's imp. Similarly, the grand stature of Leland Gaunt is undermined when he's revealed to be a trollish dwarf creature. Number two is mischievous character causing another character to laugh. Gaunt will lure you in with a smile and good humor. Brian Rusk feels nothing but warmth and laughter upon first meeting him, similar to the character Dandelo in the pages of The Dark Tower. We have our alpha male. Um, here it's Buster. Um, we've seen it before with Big Jim Rennie, Greg Stilson, Craig Toomey, and others. 
Uh, number four is the man in the black suit. Brian has an image of Mr. Gaunt in a black suit coming for him. This description is very similar to the character in the award-winning short story, The Man in the Black Suit. We have our bully, who here is um, represented by Wilma Jerzyk. We have seen the bully um, as Ace Merrill, Henry Bowers, and others. We have our catchphrase, which uh, Wilma Jerzyk says um, she's going to take care of things. All of that's capitalized. Uh, Cora Rusk says, I'll be butched. We have number seven, death by car and or car accident. Uh, first seen in Carrie. Then, of course, in Christine, The Dead Zone, Dreamcatcher, Revival, The Gunslinger, many more. We have The Prophetic Dream, uh, which is um, a huge uh, part of Stephen King's... Um, Stephen Kingisms. And I'm sorry, I realized that I did not include another um, Easter egg, which is George Stark, the, the villain from... Uh, the dark half makes a as a, an appearance as a uh, visitor, a ghostly visitor to um, Alan uh, Alan Pangborn in his dreams. Um, and I, I, I say this now because I'm looking at my notes while I'm reading the Stephen Kingisms, um, and the prophetic dream does feature Stark. Um, Brian has prophetic dreams. Everyone dreams of Gaunt, and so this is something that Stephen King does all the time. Uh, number nine is the villain forcing his subjects to utter a phrase establishing his dominance. Uh, Flag had um, the phrase, my life for you, and Mr. Gaunt makes others say, Mr. Gaunt knows best. Uh, we have the doll collection. There was a doll collection in the Tommyknockers, and here it's owned by Myrtle Keaton. Number 11 is blood magic. In the stand, Randall Flagg grips his fist um, from out of which pours blood, a demonstration of power he uses against Mother Abigail. And here, Gaunt's fingernails cut into his skin, which cause all of the dreamers in town to suddenly be thrust into nightmares. Number 12 are references to Lovecraft. Here, he name drops Leng and Yag Sothoth. Uh, number 13 is the evil car. Here, it's the Tucker Talisman, which operates very similarly to Christine. Um, it operates... Uh, actually, I'm going to talk much more about this car in the bonus episode of, of this, which will make some connections to the Dark Tower and the world of the Dark Tower. Number 14 is the Evil Salesman, which we see here um, in the form of uh, you know Leland Gaunt, and we will see again in um, the Full Dark No Stars short story, Fair Extension, which... I don't know. I, I've only read it once, and I'll read it again eventually when I get to that point, but it's hard to make the argument that that's not Leland Gaunt um, because the, the character in Fair Extension is pedaling um, on the side of a road by the airport, and it's just very similar to how um, Leland Gaunt loves to be outside and away from just the, the modern trappings of commercialism. Uh, number 15 is Auras. Uh, one of Gaunt's most fun customers is a character who can see Auras, which is a concept that he will later explore in Insomnia. Number 16 is the, uh, the, the villain playing with human lives for entertainment. Um, we've seen that with Under the Dome. Number 17, the villain taking his anger out on his henchmen. Here with uh, Gaunt. Um, taking out as an anger on Ace, um, which was seen before with Flag and Lloyd. 
Number 18 is Spiders. We've seen it before with It, The Mist, The Library, Policeman, and The Dark Tower series. Number 19 is A Storm during the conclusion of the novel, seen in It, The Shining, Revival, and others, I'm sure. Um, those are just the, the first ones to come to mind. Number 20 is The Gaunt-Thing. Um, the name of the character, Dash Thing is a staple of King's works. Um, and lastly, everything ending in fire. The town is exploding left and right. Things are on fire. Um, when things end in fire, you know that you've reached the end of a Stephen King novel. All right, everyone. Um, so final thoughts. I love the book. Um, there are times when I think that it is repetitive. There's just good sections where um, it's just customer after customer after customer comes into the store, um, customer after customer after customer goes home and has these euphoric feelings around the object that they've built. You have customer after customer after customer dreaming of Leland Gaunt. Um, so there is... Uh, you know, some repetition there. Um, but ultimately, that repetition serves to give us time spent with each of those customers who are then pitted against each other, um, which make the, the finale work so, so well. I mean, the last couple hundred pages, like I've said before, is just a nonstop thrill ride. It's awesome. It's, it's worth reading. Um, so it justifies, I think, that just the, the buying and the selling and the buying and the selling. And yeah, we get it, Leland Gaunt. Um, you know, it is not out for, for any good purpose. So it's, uh, that would really be my only complaint, but I love it. Um, I loved the book then I still do. I'll admit it took me about a month to get through it, but that's more because I probably need a break from reading Stephen King. <laughs> um, as I'm recording this, it is, uh, late May. Uh, and I've been going solid since uh, August, just and I, I probably need a break. Um, but it, it doesn't take away from the fact that I still love um, Needful Things. Okay, everybody. Uh, so if you have not done so already, please head on over to iTunes to write a review and a subscription uh, because uh, that will just really help get the word out for the Stephen King cast. And if you have not done so, please feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter, on, ya on um, Facebook, on Instagram, on Tumblr, um, all Stephen King cast. You can find me there. And join me next week as I review the uh, the adaptation of Needful Things starring uh, Max von Sydow, Ed Harris, and Bonnie Bedelia as Leland Gaunt, Alan Pangborn, and Polly Chalmers, respectively. Um, and in the meantime, everybody, have a great week, and I will see you here next week. Same King Time, same King Channel, Stephen King cast. This is your hometown. This is your your hometown This is your